You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. All right, if you have your Bible with you, feel free to open up to Mark as we start a new series in the second gospel this morning. Excited to get into this with you over the next 56 weeks or so. Um, Thanks to you guys who asked about the mission trip. As Pastor Tim mentioned earlier, I was with a team in Sierra Leone, West Africa, uh, for a couple weeks and got back just before Thanksgiving. And it was a really uh, special time for me and I think for our team as well, mostly to get to see what was going on there uh, with Cami and the long-term work and trying to encourage her and learn from them. Uh, But anytime you go cross-culturally, some of you guys know this, you've lived cross-culturally or maybe this is a cross-cultural experience being here today. Um, you know, you, you learn a lot about yourself because you realize so much of uh, how you function in the world is shaped by your culture and shaped by your experience uh, of what's normal back home. We were on a, uh, they, they did a, like a, a 7K walk uh, while we were there, which doesn't sound like too far until you realize it was 90% humidity and 95 degrees out. And then it was, it was, it was a challenge. And um, on the walk, we were talking to some of the people uh, from Sierra Leone that we were there with, and um, one of them asked what my special talent was. That's a question I'm not super comfortable answering, and I used a sort of American form of self-deprecation. I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I have any special talents. And he was crestfallen. He said, oh, that must be so sad to have no talents. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was like, oh, self-deprecation is not part of the culture here. All right. Um, then I had the more awkward thing of trying to explain what my talents were and what fantasy football is exactly. Uh, <laughs> it's good, good to know self-deprecation works here. Um, and it just got me thinking about like, you know, what parts of my identity, anytime you're cross-cultural, what, what parts of my identity am I, am I delighting in? Am I enjoying? What parts would I rather leave behind? And what parts, maybe more importantly, will be there for me a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now? What part of you is really you? You know, Christians aren't the only people to ask these questions. Obviously, our culture is kind of obsessed with questions of identity right now. As young adults, we ask a lot of who am I becoming? Who do I want to be? What, how do I want to express myself? What, what identity do I want to take on for myself? In middle age, those questions don't necessarily go away. They just get a little different. We kind of ask questions about uh, who have I become? Am I proud of who I've become and who I'm becoming? Sometimes we'll talk about uh, having a, a midlife crisis, which is really a question of identity, where we decide we want to become someone who drives a sports car instead and, and whatever. Uh, or in old age, the questions of identity don't go away. We start to ask questions of who have I become? Am I proud of that person? How will people remember me? What will people say about me after I'm gone? Uh, questions of identity really run the gamut of our life experience and our human experience. And as Christians, we don't get to opt out of those questions, but we engage in them differently than the world because we engage in those questions primarily through the lens of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to talk about really throughout this series because Mark is a gospel about identity. It begins with the proclamation, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's a definition of Jesus' identity. And the whole gospel really in the first half asks this question of who is Jesus? And it culminates in this sort of tentpole moment in the middle of the gospel where Jesus asked Peter, who do people say I am? And, and Peter gives some answers he's heard. And then Jesus says, but who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Right? And the whole second half of the book is in light of that identity, what is Jesus going to do? 
And Jesus proclaims that his identity as the Son of God exists so that he would give his life as a ransom for many because he has come to seek and to save the lost. And when he's crucified on the cross to accomplish that, what does the Roman centurion say? Truly this man was the Son of God. Mark is a gospel about the identity of Jesus. And as Christians, we find our identity in him. So, so we come to this gospel not just with historic speculation or benign interest, but it's a question of, because of this is who Jesus is, what does that make me? Because, you know, Romans 8, 29 says that you are being conformed into the likeness of his son. Can you imagine that? That you are being made into the likeness of Jesus forever. And sure, that that has pits and valleys over time, and it's two steps forward, one step back, and then we sit down for a while, uh, and then we take a few more steps, and then we kind of take a nap in our spiritual life for a while, and then we keep going. But, But you're on a trajectory, if you're a Christian, to be conformed to the image of Christ forever. And so as we go into this gospel, we go into it with the questions of who is Jesus, not just for idle speculation, but really for personal Uh, fulfillment, for personal identification, and personal identity. Because who Christ is, is, if you're a Christian, who you're called to become as well. Well, we'll get into the gospel itself here in a couple minutes, but before that, I want to just make a couple of comments about the gospel of Mark so you understand sort of where we're coming from. Mark is one of four historic documents that make up the four gospels, each of them written as biographies of Jesus' life. It's generally accepted that Mark is the first gospel written. Um, It's the recollections of Peter. Uh, That seems to be the internal evidence. Mark is full of instances that only Peter knew about. Um, And it's also, uh, there's also good external evidence to say that it was Peter's memories. Um, A number of the church fathers say that Mark wrote on behalf of Peter. One of those church fathers, a man named Papias, wrote in about 96 AD that um, Mark wrote the memory and teachings of Peter after Peter departed from Rome. Um, and Papias seemed to have really good authority and reason to say that this, this happened. Now, when did Peter depart from Rome? We'll, we'll get back to that in a few minutes. Um, Papias also mentioned that Mark didn't seem to write in order, and that seems to be what most of us have noticed over the time when we've read Mark. Uh, Mark doesn't seem chronologically interested in presenting a, a biography in the way we would think of it. You know, it doesn't go, uh, you know, 30 AD, 31 AD, 32 AD. That's not how most of the Gospels write, and it's certainly not how Mark writes. It's more like taking a box of photographs of Peter's memories and teachings and looking at them sort of one at a time. And uh, so don't get too hung up on the chronology of Mark. Um, It's also, this is going to be a little less generally accepted, but it's generally thought in New Testament studies that Mark is the basis for Matthew and Luke. Seems like Matthew and Luke probably had a copy of Mark uh, accessible to them when they composed their own Gospels. The reason we say that is the 16 chapters of Mark make up about, are, are represented 97% of the time in the 28 chapters of Matthew. So to put that more simply, Matthew seems to have taken Mark and added his own material to it. Uh, Luke does the same thing, though to a lesser extent. Luke captures about 88% of what's in Mark's Gospel and his Gospel. But Mark seems to be sort of the source material for these other two uh, Gospels, and that bothers some people. It doesn't bother me. I mean, Luke tells us in his prologue that he considered many sources when he wrote his Gospel, so it would make sense that, well, the Gospel of Mark would be one of them. Because Mark seems to be the basis of these other two, um, 
it gives special place to Mark in New Testament studies. So if you went and took a class on the Gospels in uh, either a secular environment or a seminary environment, you'd spend a lot of time thinking about Mark because it's a, generally considered the, uh, the most historically reliable of the four Gospels. Now, quick excursus. I, I think all four Gospels are historically reliable, but if you're in a secular environment, they would give sort of special status uh, to Mark. When did Mark write his Gospel? All right, that's, that's a little bit debated. Um, Papias said that when Peter departed Rome, that's when Mark wrote. The problem is Peter seems to have left Rome twice. Once in 45 AD, uh, when, um, uh, when the Emperor Claudius drove all the Jewish people, including Jewish Christians, out of Rome. And then again at the end of his life in 64 AD, when uh, Peter was executed by Nero, according to tradition, uh, being crucified upside down, but we're not sure if that part's true or not. So Mark probably either wrote in 45 AD or 65 AD, um, or 64 AD. Either one's fine. They're both within one generation of Jesus. Uh, when I was young, the idea of something being written down 30 years after it happened seemed kind of difficult to stomach because I thought, man, 30 years. Can anyone remember something from 30 years ago? And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, that doesn't seem that hard. <laughs> I mean, sure, like some of the details get fuzzy sometimes, but like I still remember, like I'm not going to mistake the feeding of the 5,000. Um, so whatever date it is, is fine. Sometimes you'll hear skeptical writers or people on the History Channel or YouTube or whatever um, say, well, there's no way Mark could have been written that early. Um, he's too, he talks too much about Jesus' divinity or deity. He's, he's too interested in, in Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. No one would have believed any of those things so early to the event. He must have written 100 years after the time of Jesus. And the obvious response to those people is, unless it happened, <laughs> unless these are real events and they really represent history. Um, but when you start arguing with the television, it's probably time to turn it off and go take a walk. Uh, so that's, that's the history, uh, some of the background on understanding the Gospel of Mark. I, I like the idea that Mark wrote in the mid-40s, but there's no real way to know for sure. Uh, somewhere in that 45 to 65 range um, is going to have to be good enough for us. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Mark. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the slide. Like, it's just right there. <laughs> Even if you've never heard the Bible before, you should get that one. Um, sometimes, you know, again, people like to be controversial and say, do we really know Mark wrote Mark? I mean, it's not, it's not he didn't write it, he didn't sign it, so we don't know for sure. Um, but everyone in the early church who talks about this gospel ascribes it to Mark. No one ascribes it to anyone else uh, for you know, hundreds and hundreds of years until like the 1860s. Did anyone even suggest somebody else wrote it? Um, so I don't know why you would say it's written by anyone other than Mark. Mark's also not the most heroic figure to tie it to. If you're trying to pump up your gospel by saying it's like special, why not say Peter wrote it? Like he seems more important. Or one of the apostles we don't know anything about, like Bartholomew or something. All we know about Mark is that he's the guy who abandoned Paul in his missionary journey. Uh, in Acts 13. So not exactly the most sympathetic figure. Um, later on, a couple hundred years after Jesus, when they tried to make up gospels, they named them after people that seemed important, like Mary or Peter. Or one guy named it after Judas, which just seems weird. Um, no one would have chosen Mark. So I think there's every good reason to think that Mark's the guy who wrote this gospel. All right, well, that's, that's the introductory material. Let's get into the, the, the meat of the message itself. Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. Why does Mark begin his gospel this way? Well, because he wants to get across that this is good news for all people. 
That's what the word gospel means. We'll talk sometimes about living a gospel-centered life or responding to the gospel. At the core, what we're talking about is the good news of Jesus Christ. Gospel refers not to just good news that's personal, but good news that's universal, something that has seismic significance for all people, something that changes a fundamental way of what it means to be human or to experience life. It is only used really to refer to massive, earth-shaking events. And Mark says, Jesus Christ is that sort of game changer for all of us. The fact that he lived a perfect life, he died the death you and I deserve and was raised to life is the ultimate good news that you and I need. This gospel is primarily about Jesus and only secondarily about us because it's going to over and over talk about the identity of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. Now, it refers to Jesus Christ. That You guys know this, but just a reminder. Christ is not Jesus' family name. It's not the equivalent of Bartleson or Smith or Gonzalez. Um, Christ refers to Jesus' title, his role in salvation history. So what does Christ mean? Some of you guys know it means it's the Greek word to refer to the Messiah, promised the Old Testament. That begs the obvious question. What does Messiah mean? Some of you guys who who've know some more about the Bible will say it means the anointed one. The Messiah is the one who's been anointed by God. And then the follow-up question to that is, well, anointed why? To do what? For what purpose? And that's really what the Gospel of Mark asks the question about over and over. What, what is Jesus anointed by God to do? And you'll really see anointing coming out in three ways in the Old Testament. Prophets were anointed by the Holy Spirit to speak on behalf of God to the people. So when we say Jesus is the Christ, we mean he is the prophet from God who speaks authoritatively about what God is like Uh, perfectly to the people. Secondly, priests were anointed in order to be able to bring the people of God to God. Jesus is, we say Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he's the anointed one. We mean he is the priest who can bring us before God the Father. And then the third time we see anointing in the Old Testament is with kings. Kings were anointed in order to rule on behalf of God and deliver the people from their enemies. Now, I just want to highlight this for a second, because when we think of kings in our context today, we think of good governance. We think of a good and godly king as being the one who makes things right, and the trains run on time, and the the trash work, and, and all the governance we experience today. That's not how the Old Testament talked about kings. When you read about David and Solomon and Saul being good and godly kings, they're... Uh, <clears throat> Their kingdom is established and proven by their capacity to deliver Israel from their enemies. So when we say that Jesus is the Messiah, we say he's the Christ, we say he's the anointed king, we mean he's the one who's able to deliver us from our enemies. Now that'll be a massive misunderstanding in Mark's gospel, as in all the gospels, because people think their enemies are flesh and blood, like the Roman Empire. But Jesus says, oh no, your enemies are actually very different. And so notice throughout the Gospel of Mark where Jesus delivers the people from their enemies. And then we'll see Jesus living out his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. You might have in your Bible a little note at the end there where it says the Son of God and then say some of the earliest manuscripts omit this title, that last phrase, Son of God. And that causes some people some angst or concern sometimes. It really shouldn't. The phrase, uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, may not have been in the first version of Mark 1, but it sure shows up in Mark 8, in Mark 15, in Mark 16. Uh, The idea of Jesus being the Son of God comes up again and again and again in this gospel. If it wasn't originally in Mark 1.1, it was there the rest of the place. So uh, it's worth mentioning now that we'll see that phrase, Jesus' identity as the Son of God, throughout this gospel. All right, um, 
I, I've got to be honest with you guys for a second. I didn't originally plan to start this series in December. I planned to start it in January because I thought, Mark doesn't have any Christmas stuff. That, that's Matthew and Luke, right? They're, they're the ones with like sweet, cuddly baby Jesus. Mark just kicks in when Jesus is 30 years old. How are we going to talk about Christmas when we talk about the Gospel of Mark? And, and then I read it again, and I thought, you know, actually, Mark is all about, in its opening chapter, anticipating the coming of Jesus and the reason for Jesus' coming. So this won't be the series in December where we talk about the infancy narratives, the, the idea of Jesus' childhood necessarily, but it is going to be the time that we talk about why Jesus came, which is really what Christmas is all about, right? It's re- being reminded of why we needed Jesus. And so Mark doesn't trace Jesus' geneal- gene- genealogy physically. He doesn't talk about who Joseph's father was or who Mary's father was. He doesn't talk about Jesus' uh, immaculate conception. Does that... Is that because Mark doesn't know about those? Is it because he's not interested? Who knows? He just doesn't talk about them. But what he does talk about is Jesus' spiritual lineage, the fact that John the Baptist came in order to prepare the way for him. And that's where we pick up in in verse 2. He says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This passage is actually a a compilation of three Old Testament passages, one from Malachi, one from Exodus, and one from Isaiah. But but Mark kind of lumps them all together under the great prophet of Isaiah and says that there is one that the Old Testament looked forward to who would anticipate and proclaim the coming of Jesus. And there's this great line from Isaiah 40, verse 3, that he quotes here where he says, make straight the path of the Lord. If you turn your Bible sometime, you do this this week, to Isaiah 40, and you can read it yourself, which is, which, when you're reading the Bible on your own, it's always good to go and look in the Old Testament when the New Testament quotes it, because it helps you understand more why the New Testament author is interested in it. What you'll see there in Isaiah 40 is that that passage is about the coming of a king, and how um, in Isaiah's day, you know, 600 BC, most villages would have had only small sort of ruts for wheelbarrows and other occasional devices. And Isaiah's saying, you have to do something entirely different now. It's time to prepare a way, time to prepare a road fit for a king. And John the Baptist is going to come and he's going to proclaim to you that you have to do things utterly differently than you've done before. I've been thinking all week about this line, prepare a path straight for the Lord. And I've thought about our English idiom, like to live on the straight and narrow, and thought, is this what John the Baptist's goal was? Was like, Hey, everybody, Jesus is coming. Like, look busy. Be, be better people. Like, get elf on a shelf. You know, like, get, get it together. Um, was that kind of John the Baptist's role? And did he succeed at it? Like, if, if revisionist history here, if John the Baptist had been wildly successful, what would have happened? Like, would all the people have repented? And Jesus would have been like, I guess my work here is done. I guess I don't need to come. <laughs> you know, was that, was that what John the Baptist was supposed to do? Was John the Baptist there to just sort of tell people they were bad people? Was that his job? Um, like, what, what's his role here? And, and I, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't really thought about that much this week. Um, and I thought about it a lot in light of this passage and in light of this proclamation from Isaiah, make straight the path of the Lord. Um, Isaiah 40 makes clear that, that the goal of this was not going to be a, a better version of a wheelbarrow path but an entirely new road fit for a king. 
And John the Baptist is kind of the same figure. He's the one who is designed to show that the Old Testament prophetic system, of which he is the ultimate, right? Jesus himself says that. There is no one born from women who is greater than John. Right? That's what I'll say later about John the Baptist. He's the epitome of the writing prophets of Isaiah. He's the epitome of the preaching prophets like Elijah. That's why he's dressed like Elijah and he wears the weird clothes and eats the weird food because he's the best of what the Old Testament offered. And yet he is unable to do the thing that he set out to do. This is what's so haunting about this description of John the Baptist here in Mark 1 is that even though all the people, look at verse 5, all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Uh, you see that in verse 5, that he's, he's wildly successful. The result is down in verse 7, he says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The people of John's generation respond to him enthusiastically. He's, he's a hugely important figure. You can read Roman historians like Suetonius or Jewish historians like Josephus. And they spend a lot more time on John the Baptist than they do on Jesus. Because at the moment, he had much greater influence and great, much greater importance uh, to the powers of the age. Uh, people thought John the Baptist might have been the Messiah. They wanted to push him in that direction. John the Baptist becomes, even his death becomes a, an aspect of, of national intrigue because he speaks truth to power and a, an empress demands that his, he be beheaded as a result. He seems like the more significant figure. And yet John's self-assessment was, all I can do is baptize you with water. All I can do is get you wet. I can't change your heart. Right? There is one coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is, I, I think, helpful for us as we think about what do we do with John the Baptist today? Do, do we think of him as someone who succeeded or failed? I, I think we take John the Baptist and we go to Romans 7 and we think about all that the law can and can't do for us. Romans 7 points out to us that the law is able to show us our sin, but it's not able to do anything about it. Romans 7, 7 says that without the law, I would not have known what coveting was. Right? It, it shows me the reality of my sin, but it, it can't solve it. And you guys know that, right? Like knowing the right thing to do and doing it is a mighty gulf. If you don't believe that, just wait till January 1st when you resolve that you will stop eating junk food and you will resolve to exercise and you will resolve to speak Spanish while you're doing it. And you're, you've got all your resolutions ready and you know all the reasons you want to do them and you're going to do them. And then January 2nd happens and they go away, right? Because knowing the good and choosing the good are not the same thing, right? The law can show us our intent. It can show us what the, the requirements are, but it, it doesn't give us the capacity to accomplish it. And John the Baptist is an incredibly insightful figure. Even, even historians who don't believe in the Bible don't really know what to do with John the Baptist because his practice of baptizing is so unusual. Um, yes, in the Second Temple Jewish era, there were like ritual washings that Jewish people would do that could sometimes be referred to as immersions, which is where the word baptism comes from. But it was always self-administered. People would wash their own hands or they would dunk themselves. It was always a, a, a commitment of a better life. John the Baptist seems to be, as best we can tell, the first person who started being the dunker of others, who had this insight that like, you're going to need someone else in order to bring you to God. You're going to need someone else who can 
who can help you to live a good life before God. And John the Baptist seems at this point in Mark 1, 7 and 8 to say, I can't do that. Like, I know you need someone to bring your death to sin and a life to God, but all I seem to do is get you wet. Like, I can't change you, right? And we look at our own self in the mirror and we say the same problem about ourselves. Like, I, I, we can't change ourselves. And, but John the Baptist looks and says, there's someone who's coming who's going to bring the Spirit of God to change you. There's someone coming after me who is mightier than I, who can make a meaningful difference about us before God. Of course, he's talking about his cousin, Jesus. He describes himself as unworthy to untie the shoes of his feet. This is a vivid metaphor because of uh, how lowly of a job it would be to, to deal with someone else's feet in that culture, to, to wash them, to take care of them. Um, in our culture, restrooms are probably the closest example or corollary emotionally. I'm sorry, that's a crass example, but the, the closest, if you were to paraphrase this, would be to say, I'm not worthy to unclog your toilet. And you'd say, oh, that's kind of gross. But that's kind of what John is saying, right? That, that the difference between him and Jesus is vast. John's humility helps us understand Jesus' significance today, right? Because we see John's insight. We need baptism from the, from the outside, and not just the physical act, but the change, right? We need someone else in order to, we need someone else to bring us to God. We need someone else to, to change us from the inside out. And John, speaking on behalf of the whole Old Testament prophetic system, says, the law is not going to do it. A direct word from God is not going to do it. Good intentions aren't going to do it. Repenting and promising to be better next time is not going to do it. You and I need a Savior who can give us a new heart and change us from the inside out. We need what Romans 8 described. We need someone who through his Spirit can conform us to the identity of Christ forever. And that's what the Gospel marks about. That's what you and I have in front of us. That's what we're looking forward to, is this one who is coming who will change us. Not quickly, not easily, not in one moment or one foul swoop, but eternally, spiritually, and faithfully. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is at work in you. Uh, we're grateful for that, and we look forward to the day that we're going to be with him forever. Um, a couple words about this series before we close here. Um, I imagine that as we come to communion today, there are going to be some of you who are really excited about this idea. We're excited about the gospel. We're excited about the work of Christ in us. And we say, yeah, I, I can see how that's happening. I can see how Christ is reshaping my desires and reshaping my heart. And, and I'm going for it. And I'm, I'm committed to it. And let's, let's go. And if that's you, praise God for that. That, that. I'm grateful you're in that season. I imagine for some others of you, as we come to communion today, the idea of, of hoping for a new heart or new identity, or embracing new longings just feels exhausting. You just feel like, I've tried that. I tried that when I was younger, or I tried that um, when I was more involved in the church in the past. And it just, it just felt like a treadmill to nowhere. Like, if that's you and you're coming to communion today, I'm not here to beat you up. I'm not here to shame you or guilt you. I'm certainly not here to try to exhort you to try harder. Um, what I am here to do is, is to ask you to, to invite Jesus into that conversation and to say, maybe you might pray to God today, like, God, I don't know if I, if I want that new identity or I want that new longing or I want that new heart, but I, I want to want it and, and I believe that pleases you. I, I want to be someone who wants to move in that direction 
and I believe that honors you. And so if that's you, I would encourage you to come to communion not with a spirit of resignation or a spirit of self-determination, but just of a conversation with God about where you're at honestly before him. And then third group, some of you might be coming to communion today um, feeling like there is a lot of repenting that you need to do in your heart. It's not so much that you've tried to put on the identity of Christ and it's felt exhausting, so much as you've just been running away from that. Like you, you have, if John the Baptist was here preaching today about repentance and forgiveness of sins, you'd feel like the spotlight was on you and some stuff that you need to repent of before God. Um, we're glad you're here, if that's the case. And I would encourage you to, to do that business with God before we take communion today. Um, we're all in the same boat. We're, we're all sinners. We're all in need of a Savior. None of us is going to get better on our own, but also none of us is going to move in the direction of Christ-likeness while we continue to run away from it either. So I'd encourage you to spend some time in repentance before God. I hope by the end of 2023, as we finish uh, Mark 16, that you and I will be able to look at each other and say, hey, I see Christ at work in you. I see the way that you've taken on the identity of Christ in the last, last year. I see how you're more courageous or more passionate or more kind or more determined or more alive and more yourself because of who Christ is in you. I hope that as we embark on this journey as a church, it'll help us all become more who we are as individuals because we each are becoming who Christ is in us. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for um, John the Baptist and his uh, awareness of how limited the will is how limited our um, sort of self-commitments are apart from you. And God, we're grateful that, that, that coming to communion is not just another promise to do better next time, um, but it's a, a recognition that you have taken on yourself every sin that we've committed, every failure, and that you have given us uh, all that we need for life and godliness. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.